Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On today's episode, our guest is Ben Atherton Zeman, a public speaker and comedic performer on issues of violence prevention. His one-man show, Voices of Men, has been performed in over 46 states and all around the world, including four continents. Ben has spoken and performed at military installations, colleges, high schools, public theaters, conferences, houses of worship, and juvenile detention facilities. For almost 30 years, Ben has worked as a prevention education worker for rape crisis centers, domestic violence programs, and state coalitions. He is an advisory board member for the White Ribbon Campaign in the United Kingdom and a blogger for Ms. Magazine. Ben will speak with us today about what it speaks to be a, quote, recovering sexist, unquote, and how he uses his comedy and performance art to help every man recognize and challenge violence and sexism in the world and in themselves. He will also speak with us about his hashtag, Men Listen to Women, and how he envisions we can use it as a starting point to create meaningful dialogue about issues of male privilege, sexism, misogyny, and healthy relationships amongst the sexes and across the gender spectrum. So welcome, Ben. Thanks, Terry. I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm thrilled to have you. So in your bio, you refer to yourself in quotes as a recovering sexist. <laughs> what what do you mean when you say you're a recovering sexist? And how did you come to this place of consciousness and self-awareness? Well, I, I, I love it when people focus on the recovering sexist with uh with quotes. And uh, again, I'm just so thrilled to be on your podcast. I listened to uh, your interview with my mentor, Phyllis B. Frank, and just excited to be in the company of, of her and Ruth Glenn and so many other folks who've done this work longer than me, better than me. I think recovering sexist is sort of this idea that I'm never done, you know, that there's, as the Women of Color Network puts it, I'm paraphrasing, but your ally card is taken back at the end of each day, you know, that I don't wake up and I'm an ally as a white person to uh, people of color. As I, like other male identified people, were raised in this culture that favors my gender over yours, that favors whites over people of color, that favors heterosexuals over LGBTQ folks. And try as I may, I will never be free of that influence. So it's a continuous struggle for me. And recovering sexist is, I think, my way of using a little bit of humor, imagining the groups where someone says, hi, my name is Ben, and I, I'm, a, I'm a sexist. And everyone goes, hi, Ben. So were you always this way? Did you grow up in a progressive home with you know, values of feminism and, and plurality taught? I, I, th- I thought you were going to say, was I always a sexist? Well, yes, <laughs> I was. I used to be much worse, in fact. No, my parents were pretty fantastic people. My mom is still with us, and I grew up mostly with my stepfather. And my biological father I would see in the summers, and they're all pretty amazing. Um, spent most of my time with my mom and my stepfather. My mom's American. My stepfather is Czech from 
the now what's now called the Czech Republic. And they instilled in me a very strong sense of disrespect for convention. So, for example, and for commercialism and anyone trying to sell any ideas. So we would watch, you know, Star Trek with William Shatner on our black and white television. There were no remotes back then. So they would make sure they would go up to the TV and turn down the volume. And I have this image. The TV was on the floor and... The three of us, while the commercials were playing, they were like making fun of them. They were, and and we would, our shoes were off. We would take our feet with our smelly socks and we would try to put the feet underneath the noses of the people who were trying to sell us things. Like, smell my feet, you <laughs> silly commercial. And uh, we moved around a lot. And when I was in elementary school during the Carter administration, I read a an article about the peanut farmers in Georgia shooting the birds that were, you know, eating the peanuts. And I thought that wasn't right. The bird shouldn't be shot. So I wrote to President Carter saying, you're from Georgia, you know, can you, can you help out with this? And he wrote me back. Uh, there's a, there was this <laughs> class project that we did where we all wrote to President Carter and they were holding up this letter that he had, uh, he had written that's in some newspaper long ago. I remember it partly because the photographer for the local paper told us all, okay, don't look at me. <laughs> you know, look at the teacher, like you're paying attention. I'm sitting at the back. I was the one who wrote the letter, but I, I guess I couldn't help myself. I'm the only one looking right at the camera and it's a big smile. Wow. You, your childhood sounds like it was so much fun. <laughs> I had a I'm, great childhood. I'm envious. Uh, it wasn't all great. I mean, in, in middle school, I was, I was, uh, I think partly because of moving around a lot, I was bullied and harassed uh, as the new kid. And specifically starting in, in, I guess, third and fourth grade, but getting much worse in sixth grade, I was a victim of pretty horrifying homophobic bullying. I was called all of the slurs for gay and the slurs for girl because I was not a very hyper-masculine boy. Were you in drama? You know, I was. The moment I could, uh, the moment there was any kind of drama, anything, I joined it. But there wasn't anything in my elementary school, in my middle school. So once I got to high school in, in Ithaca High School in Ithaca, New York, there was a building called A Building. And actually in, in junior high, at Boynton Junior High, there was the music room. So I, I would hide there. A lot, of the, a lot of the kids who were on the margins would hide in the, in the music room in the A Building and that's that's really where I started uh, finding my people. So is that how you came upon using acting and performance art as a way to teach about violence prevention? Not really. I came upon acting before I came about on feminism and uh, anti-violence. So I was an only child and, again, always the new kid. So I was, was kind of lonely and would sometimes have no, no one to play with. So my grandmother would lend me her reel-to-reel tape recorder, which before cassette tapes was, was the, you had these home reel-to-reel tapes, tape recorders, and I would record myself as Walter Cronkite or do little skits with my grandmother. We would reenact commercials like the fill it to the rim with brim and things like that. So I started doing voices and then started watching Monty Python's Flying Circus in the mid-70s 
and me and my friends would would reenact them. Oh, there's a penguin on the television set. Well, what's what's it doing? It's going to explode. That sort of thing. And um, it wasn't until later that I discovered social justice and feminism in particular and made the connection. So in your one-man play, Voices of Men, you cover a variety of subjects from sexual assault uh, and date rape to dating and domestic violence and sexual harassment and objectification. And actually, I should give a spoiler alert to our listeners that hearing me describe and ask you questions about the play doesn't in any way diminish the impact of seeing it in person. So it's still worthwhile. And I highly recommend that our listeners, you know, if you get a chance to please see the play. So getting back to Voices of Men, you. You, you do so by using humor and celebrity male impressions to explore these topics and in your words to minimize defensiveness. So let's, you know, I'd love for the listeners to learn more about how you do so. You, st- you start with the first character, Rocky. And I think if I remember your video correctly, there's an overlay with the count tallying consent or lack thereof that I found really powerful. Can you describe what you do there for our listeners? Well, sure. And, and thank you for the kind words about the play. If you don't mind, I'll answer the first part of the question before going on to the specific Rocky scene. Is that all right? Sure, sure. And and it's it's interesting that if 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 my promotional material still uses the phrase date rape, because that's that's uh we don't really use that term anymore in the sexual violence prevention movement. I, I have to I have to change that. Okay. Um like I said, I was a I was a theater kid and I, I could do voices and then I discovered this amazing world of feminism and violence against women starting in 1986 on the, uh, the Great Peace March for Global Nuclear Disarmament. It was a cross-country walk for peace that I did along with about a thousand other people. And I was 19 and I learned from feminist women, a woman named Liz Merrick in particular, but many women from the Women's Collective about feminism about the stereotypes of feminism and the reality. And Liz, I believe it was Liz in particular, who said, hey, I really need you to, I mean, to step up on this. And I became a volunteer at the college women's center where I was attending and then ended up getting jobs, usually as a community educator in different rape crisis centers and domestic violence programs and one state coalition, the West Virginia Coalition against domestic violence. And, you know, I got pretty good at giving presentations, but whenever I would give a presentation to an audience that was not there willingly, so your college orientation, your high school assembly, training for members of the United States military, they would get bored. They would tune out. They would, uh, in one case, there was a guy who actually fell asleep. (laughs) <laughs> in a college wow. orientation. And that was embarrassing. <laughs> and it was I wanted these folks more than any to really hear the message. So I started noticing when they weren't falling asleep, basically. And they weren't falling asleep when I was either A, being funny, B, telling a survivor story that I had permission to tell, or bringing a survivor who was willing to tell her or his story, C, playing video clips, or D, talking about myself, being self-reflective. In other words, rather than being preachy, saying, hey, here's how, here's the sexism and the male privilege that I acted out when I was your age, 
here's how I was defensive when I was called on the sexist behavior. And here's how I minimized what I did. And those were the times when the audience members would kind of wake up and pay attention. I also was attending conferences, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence Conference in particular, and was seeing these amazing national speakers like Ann O'Dell and the late, great Ellen Pence. And speakers like Ann and Ellen were really funny. I mean, I hadn't quite realized that this serious issue of domestic violence, of sexual violence, could be spoken about using humor. And that, in fact, that was a much more effective way to do it. I saw both Ellen and Anne address large groups of police officers who, again, were there because they had to be. And they were hilarious. Anne is still hilarious. And they just had the audience in the palm of their hand by even just a 10 or 20 minutes in. And so I thought to myself, hmm, I could do this. You know, I, I can use voices. Maybe I should write a play and call it a play, only have it cover those same bases that I'm covering, the sexual violence, the domestic violence 101. Uh, maybe I should even call it Voices of Men. And so that's how it began. And sorry, a bit of a long story no, there. No, that's but I could- great. Thank you for sharing. This is not unique to the Rocky films, but uh, there's a scene in the first Rocky film where he asks Adrian to come into the apartment and she says, no, I, I don't want to go. And he continues to ask He and she continues to say no over and over and over again. Oh, come on. I got these animals. I got these real nice animals inside. Come on. And she sometimes will chuckle a little, but she just keeps saying no. And he keeps asking until she relents and she comes in. And then again, once she's there, do you want to do you want to sit down? And she says no. And then she actually out and out tries to leave and he blocks the door. And when I first saw Rocky. I didn't notice that scene. I didn't notice that he was, that she was saying no, because it. I was trained that if a woman says no, it's okay to keep asking until she changes her mind. I never was trained to hold somebody down and use physical restraint to sexually assault them was okay. But I was told them that, you know, a man gets to use cajoling gets to use maybe some humor like Rocky did gets to use, you know, convincing charm, all these C words to try to get the person that he's with, usually a woman to change her mind. And once some rape prevention educators had, had raised my consciousness about this, it made me mad and I wanted to do something. And so my friend will bear it. Um, put those those numbers up on the the video that you saw when you saw the performance and I agree it's a, it's it's a it's a powerful video so what i like about that choice of using rocky is that he re- represents the physicality of being male in society mm-hmm. right he's using his mm-hmm. body to assert his superiority and his power and his body is also a weapon for him to dominate his opponent literally 
giving him status and wealth in his profession, right? So generations of films and cultural references have been created that reference that character or that film as a source of iconic, quote unquote, strength. Yes. And also, you know, in your clip, he's literally fighting to gain status and get the girl. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, decades later, Katy Perry comes out with the song Roar, a, a homage in some ways to Rocky. And that song quickly became a song of self-empowerment for women, using the same symbols of fighting and referencing the Rocky Rocky song, Eye of the Tiger, in its lyrics. What are your thoughts about the effectiveness of that symbolism? Did it work for you, given who the the messenger was? Well, I am a big fan of that Katy Perry song. (laughs) I love that you – I loved your analysis of Rocky as this icon of, um, of white Western masculinity and his use of physicality. I also like the character and chose the character because it's a pretty unique voice. It sounds like Rocky and it sounds different from my voice, but it's a, uh, he's a, he's a quote unquote, nice guy. Like there's a stereotype of a rapist as this stranger crouching behind a bush with a knife. And as you know, that's, that's far from the truth. The vast majority of rapists are someone that the victim knows that the victim trusts that the victim loves maybe. And I think that the existence of any stereotype, any of the main stereotypes around sexual violence, make it harder to end sexual violence. So that when someone is accused of rape, of sexual violence, as many beloved men have been, people rush to the defense not because they haven't raped, but because they haven't fit the stereotype. Well, he's a nice guy, so of course he couldn't have raped. Well, he did he wasn't ch- crouching behind a bush with a knife, you know. He was uh, <laughs> he was <laughs> doing other things. I mean, I could use any of the current examples, even as close as yesterday, with Joel Davis being arrested mm-hmm. for sex with children. Uh, why did he say sex with children? It's rape. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reading the headline. And it says sex with children. The whole phrase "sex with children" just should just not be allowed. Yeah, um, and I agree. There's so many of these headlines that uh, diminish the reality of sexual violence by putting in these terms that imply consent. So your next character in your play is James Bond. Tell tell us what you reveal through him. Well, again, it's another iconic voice, you know, Sean Connery's James Bond. It, it sounds very different from my voice. And, and by the way, tough voice for me to do. I really had to work. <laughs> I, uh, fortunately, I, ha- I had a, a neighbor, Mary, who uh, is from Edinburgh, where he's from. So I actually asked her to talk into a tape recorder with all my lines. And uh, that that helped me. But yeah, again, here's this icon of white Western, Western masculinity, who himself, uh, maybe less of a nice guy, the character, uh, has used violence against women in the movies and certainly coercion and certainly objectification, much more than the Rocky character has. And according to his ex, Sean Connery himself was even a, a wife beater. So here's this this icon with the distinctive voice, and the topic is domestic violence. And with all these characters, this is kind of <laughs> fairly unrealistic, <laughs> maybe, aha moment that each of them goes through, saying, oh my gosh, uh, maybe I'm part of the problem. I should be part of the solution. And in James Bond's case, he hears about the White Ribbon Campaign, uh, an international campaign for men against violence against women, dons a white ribbon, 
himself on his lapel of his fancy suit, my costume, which is my actually my wedding tux that I use, and pledges to never commit, condone, or remain silent about men's violence against women. And each of these characters at the end of the scene admit that they're not done. You know, there's still, and in, 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 in James Bond's case, he says, I shall have some behavior that would fall in the category of these warning shines, but I try not to be defensive when I'm called on it. And, um, you know, in as far as I know, I can't remember any film of James Bond where he's self-reflective at all about his <laughs> sexism or his relationships in a way I feel like he's defense he he justifies it because of his career, you know? Like, oh, yeah. I, I have to discard all these women because I'm just not available to be in one place at one time given my duty to, you know, to the British Republic. That's my memory as well. Um and yet I like I said, a little unrealistic maybe, and yet any man can choose to behave in a way that's respectful towards women, just as any white person can choose to behave in a way that respectful and honors the lives of people of color. So, yeah, I think any, the, the worst sexist, if you will, the worst racist can always choose not to do that. And, and speaking of racism, <laughs> you know, the the character has been played by many actors over the years. And there was one point where people were, uh, I think maybe there was even a campaign to um, have Idris Elba be the next James Bond. And obviously he wasn't chosen. So what are your thoughts about that? I remember that. I think it's a terrible time and it's a wonderful time to be alive. <laughs> we're, we're at this juncture where, you know, as a person from the United States, there is this just horrible Supreme Court taking away the rights of workers, taking the rights away of LGBTQ folks, of women, taking the women's ability to choose what to do with their bodies. There is a State Department that's denying refugee status to victims of domestic violence fleeing their country. And yet we're also in a, a culture that has produced the movie Black Panther, one of my, my favorite movies of the year. Now, the movie Black Panther or casting of Idris Elba as James Bond had it happened. That's not going to stop racism any more than having Barack Obama as president stop racism. In fact, what I think we've seen and what um, people of color have, have, have taught me is that there's this backlash to Hannesy Coates called uh, Donald Trump the first white American president, not because he was the first one, but because he's the first president to have been elected kind of as a response to there being a black president. So many angry whites were wanted to go the other way and voted for Trump. And, and also and, to serve only white Americans. Exactly. Exactly so. I and many others, including I'm, I'm guessing you, are going to take to the streets tomorrow on Saturday to to say that we don't agree with this Supreme Court. We don't agree with families being split up at the border. Our first lady wore a coat saying, yeah. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. <laughs> when visiting children. And uh, I'm marching tomorrow to say I do care. And I actually have a sign over in the corner saying we all should care. 
Yeah. With the, it's on the, it's written on the back of Lady Liberty. And it was by this cartoonist who gave me permission to make it into a sign. So I'm excited as I was in the eighties to be a part of this spectacular, wonderful, multiracial, multi-gendered movement for social justice and progressive change. While at the same time, horrified by how many people are being hurt by this administration and by the the current climate that we have that emboldens these daily acts of sexism, of racism. So your next character, Austin Powers, I think many- <laughs> Yeah, baby. <laughs> what was it like to have Austin Powers? Every hey. <laughs> So, so sorry. I, I think many people might argue that Austin is himself a caricature of sexist behavior. Yes. He uses language to objectify women and certainly does so, you know, in his behavior. But do you would you say that his character does more to subvert or to reinforce sexist stereotypes? Why why do you use him? Well, his character, yeah, it's clearly a, it's clearly Mike Myers making fun of one of my other characters, James Bond, among others, uh, with bad teeth and things like that. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think he both, and this maybe answers your Idris Elba question a bit. If if Idris Elba had been cast as James Bond, he would most likely continue to reinforce while challenging uh, some stereotypes. So. I use him. is is an iconic character and has a distinctive voice. The costume is hilarious and embarrassing, and the hair is funny. So you know he he fits my bill for <laughs> for, for for someone like that. And I also wanted Austin because in particular, here's a guy who's just wanting to shag every woman that he meets, basically. And um. By the way, of the three characters, <laughs> we'll just say that's the one that's most autobiographical to Ben. Uh, mm. I, I wasn't that obvious about it as I didn't, you know, I didn't wear that suit when I was in college. But that really was on my mind a lot of the time when I was meeting any woman that was remotely my age in college was, she's gorgeous. How can I? make out with her? How can I make her my girlfriend? So I owe so many women apologies. And if any of them are listening to the podcast, so sorry. Uh, and um, this may seem more to some uh, less of an o- less of overtly violent act than rape, than domestic violence, dating violence, but the objectification of women and it's related street harassment, sexual coercion, except uh, things like that. I think you can't really have the more, what I've learned is you can't really have the more overt acts of violence up to and including the murder of women by men without having, again, this culture that favors my gender and without having these daily acts, this daily violence of workplace sexual harassment of you know, every guy (laughs) just having this agenda of how can I make out with this person? How can I make this person my girlfriend? So a lot of men don't understand that about street harassment, for example. Well, what's wrong with just saying, hey, you look nice? Well, there's nothing wrong with that, maybe. But what if that's said to this woman a hundred times a day? Hey, you look nice. Hey, you look nice. Hey, you look nice. 
And what if when she ignores it on the hundredth time, the guy says, hey, what are you too good for me? What, you want to just walk away? Because there's this violence that men dish out to women when they don't react in the perfect and proper way to our <laughs> uninvited, quote unquote, compliments. And the, the movements the, to stop street harassment have taught me this. So Austin Powers' character is kind of this overdone, uh, over-the-top version of a guy who just you know, sees women as sex objects. He meets a, 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 a cute girl and asks for her number, and she won't give him her number until he reads Feminist Theory from Margin to Center by Bell Hooks. And he reads it. She then invites him over, but it's not to shag. It's to show him Gene Kilborn's Killing Us Softly <laughs> about the objectification of women in media. And so Austin's world is rocked and he realizes he's part of the problem and pledges to do better. So I'm glad that you are referencing some transformation in each of these characters, or at least, you know, alluding to the possibility of it. You spoke earlier about some techniques in communication that you found were most effective, you know, using humor, sharing survivor stories, being self-reflective, video clips. Have you found in your experience that there are certain audiences that have been more receptive, more or less receptive to the messages you're delivering and which ones have they been? Well, I perform the play sometimes for conferences like the National Men and Masculinity Conference for NOMAS or like the Battered Mothers Custody Conference, like the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence Conference. And, you know, those audiences, it's <laughs> those audiences are great. You know, and I, so certainly their response is more receptive. I change the content of the play, depending on who the audience is. So I'll try different things and new things with audiences like that. But the play really is written for the audiences that don't respond well, <laughs> that are not there willingly. And I have a bit of a lower bar. You know, I don't expect a standing ovation or anything. And I get fewer laughs. But what I would like is for some of the folks that showed up to this performance or to this briefing, if I'm in the military, to this assembly, if I'm in a high school, who showed up expecting to be bored, expecting to be preached to, or expecting to be lectured at. If some of them will leave saying, oh, okay, I get it, or this has happened to me, or this has happened to my friend, to someone I know, you know what? I do want to do something about this. If I want, if I can get some of those folks to then take that next step and get involved, even if it's in a small way. So I do, I kind of trick the audience into the male members of the audience, the male identified members of the audience to stand at the end of the play and recite the white ribbon campaign pledge with me. I pledge to never commit, condone, or remain silent about men's violence against women. And then I say, hey, I have white ribbons. Come on and get a white ribbon at the end. And, uh, you know, they're required to be there for the performance, but they're not required to come talk to me. And I will. I'll talk to every single man <laughs> who wants a right white ribbon. I will, I will make sure they know 
as best as, as I can, you know, what it means and why they are wearing it and get to know a little bit about them and thank them for, for doing that. And for example, it's, it, I remember one military base, you know, that it was taking too long. Like I had a long line of men wanting to get these ribbons and that, you know, so the, the, the chief master sergeants were trying to get them to, to, to leave. They're like, okay, guys, you, you got to go now. And they weren't, they were staying in line because there are a lot of men out there who really don't like the fact that so many men victimize women and really are looking to be a part of the solution. They maybe just haven't, figured out how. And I try to directly ask these men, will you help me with this? Will you do this? Will you wear a white ribbon? And the hosts who bring me, I ask them and they and I work out a next step that they can do so that these men are then sent an email saying, hey, glad you want to do more. Here's this next project that we need your help with. Some of them won't do it, but some will. And for some, it's the first step in what is hopefully a lifetime full of involvement. Have you found that there's any particular personality type or trait? I mean, I, I know it's, you probably don't have the data, you know, to answer um, effectively, but is there anything that can be predictive of who in the audience is going to be more receptive to the message than others and who's going to be more resistant? You're right. I don't have the data. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a social scientist nor an academic, uh, but I have friends who are, and I'm sure they'd uh, give a better answer. But just from my own experience, it tends to most affect those whose lives have been touched by male violence against women. Mm. Uh, so you, someone who's who is it's happened to their sister or their mother, et cetera. And this used to be used as an organizing principle by some of us who do this work. Okay. How many of you guys in the audience have a mother, have a sister? Like it would be a funny line. You're like, and they all raise their hand because almost everyone has a mother or sister, a female friend, somebody they love who's female. And like, okay, so one in four of those women are going to be victims of violence in their life. Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be your mom or your sister? or your girlfriend. And, you know, I kind of thought this was a cool way to get guys to figure this out. Like, wow, well, obviously none of the above. So I, I, uh, that's, I guess I do care about this issue. But women have educated me and others that, uh, you know, you really shouldn't just care about the women that are somehow connected to you, that this is not about your mother, your sister, Etc. This is about just women having the rights to be free of violence, even if you're, even if they're not connected to you, even if they don't look like you. And in my conversation with Tom Digby, I think the message should also be: it's about you and your own freedom. Yes. So really, it's about all of us. Great. So, what can you tell us about your violence prevention workshop? at rape crisis centers and domestic violence programs. Well, sure. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Tom. I'm looking forward to hearing his, his interview as well. The workshops I, I facilitated at rape crisis centers and domestic violence programs really covered the same content as 
what is now covered in in uh, Voices of Men, the main myths and facts about domestic violence. That you know, it's not it's not all about physical violence. Uh, in fact, some of the worst violence is not at all physical. It's about power and control. It's about emotional abuse and that bruises heal and that uh, that broken bones heal. But it sometimes doesn't take as Sometimes it takes longer to heal if you're being called stupid, if you're being called ugly or lazy or a bad mother or crazy. And the sexual violence workshops talk about the myths and realities of sexual violence, like I started to mention before, that it's not a stranger jumping out from a bush. And that in particular, it's never the victim's fault. So many people want to blame rape victims. They want to ask, why did she go to Bill Cosby's? house why did she have that drink as opposed to why did he rape her why did he drug her drink and what can we do to hold that man these men accountable for their use of violence and provide safety and belief for her should she choose to say something Andrea Constand is such a hero of mine in particular and survivors in general for having the strength to share what these men did to them. I'm so excited and hopeful and thankful to the many women and children and men who have spoken up and said, me too. I think it's one of the when I said that we live in horrible times, we live in wonderful times. This is one of the things that's most hopeful for me is that I live in the age of me too. So when you're with these audiences, the survivors from the rape crisis centers and domestic violence programs, what has surprised you the most about how the victims and survivors respond to your message? Well, the, and again, the play really isn't for them. I mean, it's not aimed at them. But I mentioned the Battered Mothers Custody Conference, which is an annual conference. BatteredMothersCustodyConference.com or .org, I think. It's an, a wonderful annual conference that I will plug here, uh, usually in the Albany area. So I, I perform Voices of Men there this year, and probably more than half of the audience members were survivors of domestic violence, many of them mothers of children who are often taken away from them and given to abusive men by court systems and judges who don't believe women. And yeah, their reaction to the play is, it seems real uh, and it seems accurate. And that's because it was shaped by them. You know, initially when I created Voices of Men, I would get feedback from survivors and from advocates. Well, you got this right, but this part was a little bit off. And so it it has been shaped by this feminist movement. You know, I had a stereotype of survivors, I think many do, that sort of is these <laughs> wilting wallflowers. And I've found, as I'm sure you've found, Terry, that this is anything but the case, that survivors are the most resilient, the most articulate, incredible women, and yes, children and men as well, just that they're my, that they're my heroes, they're my sheroes, and that in many ways, they are and should be the leaders of this movement. Well, 
in your advocacy efforts to bring awareness to these issues, you've created a hashtag, men listen to women. <laughs> and I, I believe it comes from a place of re-envisioning a notion of, of a progressive masculinity. What do you think are the benefits of men listening to women? Well, this is not something that I made up myself. A year after the Million Man March in Washington, D.C., I uh, came up to my mentor, Phyllis B. Frank, and I said, hey, I have this great idea. Uh, you know about the Million Man March, right? Well, how about we have a million man pledge? How about we try to get a million men to pledge to not be violent, to, to work against violence? And Phyllis's response basically was, oh, great. Yeah, let's reward men for pledging not to beat me. And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, which is <laughs> often the response I had <laughs> when Phyllis would educate me about something. Uh, initially, it was, no, you're wrong. But the, eventually, when I started listening to her a bit better, uh, it was, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. And, and she said, you know, you, you know, it'd be great. I would just love a million men to pledge a million men to pledge to listen to women. And that was when I added to the, the pledge at the end of Voices of Men listen to women. You may know the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom has the phrase, listen to women for a change. I got to hang out at the audience of, of that group, Wilp in Boston, right after the Great Peace March, where I lived there with my, my housemate and friend, Julia Gaztila, who worked at Wilp. And so, you know, I had these examples of it's important to listen to women uh, around me. And so these women <laughs> taught me that it's important to listen to women. And no one had used the hashtag men listen to women, which is sad. But uh, <laughs> I, I am trying to champion that now. And the way it's written, it can be kind of, um, you know, a, a command like men listen to women. Uh, but it could also be Men listen to women. Like, did you know men listen to women? You know, like it's a thing that happens and also a command. I think that uh, when we're talking about those daily acts of violence upon which the more severe acts of violence rest, the daily sexism, et cetera, I think it starts with uh, women's voices being silenced, women's voices not being valued by patriarchy, by men. And like it says, if we listen to women for a change – then I think it all will change. Well, I certainly look forward to hearing how that hashtag grows and, and hopefully our <laughs> listeners will be hearing that as well and using it and tweeting. So it seems like you're in a transitional phase of your life, Ben. <laughs> you are about to start graduate school in divinity in the fall. I am. How, how will that new identity inform the advocacy work that you're doing and vice versa? How will your advocacy work influence and shape your learning and the teachings that you might offer to your fellow classmates? Well, I'm very excited to go to Divinity School, Boston University School of Theology, is where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. got his doctorate. Uh, so I will be following in the footsteps of visionary leaders for social justice like Dr. King. It also will give me a job <laughs> in a way that I haven't had in many years. It was 
my honor to be a community educator for those domestic violence programs and rape crisis centers that that hired me when I was younger, and my honor to perform Voices of Men and do consulting and training across the country and around the world when I was older. But I don't think it makes sense for me to really count on this movement for a job, to count on this movement to pay my bills. And so I've, I've never been good at marketing Voices of Men, the play, partly because it just felt wrong. I know there are others who do a lot of marketing and, you know, they're friends of mine and I respect them and I respect that, but it's just, it's just not right for me. So as a parish minister, a Unitarian Universalist parish minister, it will be my honor and my job to continue to stand up against violence against women, against racism, against LGBTQ oppression, and to try to help build a loving activist community in whatever church chooses me as their minister. I'm 52 years old, going back to school, (laughs) should be interesting. And I will be 55 when I start this new career of mine. Not totally new because it's still a social justice, social change job, but it is uh, the job of a minister, which I've never had before. And I'm looking forward to it. Well, I hope it will still give you time to work on Voices of Men. Yeah, me too. I, I, I think it will. Uh, I, I will continue to not promote my play. And <laughs> what usually happens is folks do call me who have uh, who've seen the website or who have seen me perform at colleges. And yeah, still still excited to perform the play. I, I, I just did a few shows a couple months ago, but uh, it will have to work around my class schedule now. Well, I, I wish you luck on that. I'm looking forward to seeing how your uh, transition will influence the advocacy work that you do and um, continue to be part of the solution to end violence against women. No, thanks, Terry. I'm <gasps> excited as well. So I want to turn to a privilege that I had recently. Last month, I was able to join a national organization for Men Against Sexism council meeting and sit in as an, I guess, an observer, but somewhat of a participant. And I was impressed, and you're you're a member of NOMAS, and I was impressed by the actual process of facilitating um, the meeting, of problem solving, of gathering uh, input from the participants. Can you talk about two in particular, two processes, the empowerment period and the process period? Sure. I'd be happy to. And I was thrilled to have you attend that meeting. If memory serves, I beg that you not leave until the end. (laughs) So I'm glad you stayed because it seems to have stuck with you. Uh Um, The empowerment period is a process that was created by Phyllis B. Frank, who I've mentioned, and Wayne Morris with, I'm sure, input from a lot of others. And I'm surprised that, honestly, this has not caught on like wildfire. I feel like this is something I want. I want every meeting to end like this. So we do our business as we did that day that you sat with us at NOMAS. The agenda items are are done for the day. And then the process person, the person who's facilitating for process says, okay, now it's time for the empowerment period. And this is a time for people 
who are members of marginalized groups to speak about any of those daily indignities, daily acts of violence. They're sometimes called microaggressions. At NOMAS, we don't use the term microaggressions because for many, uh, it's nothing micro about them, especially the accumulation of them. The person says who they're, what identity they're speaking from. So if it were me, I'd, I'd basically have to say I'm speaking right now as a bisexual male or as a male raised working class or as a male with some learning disabilities. If someone else is speaking, they'll say, well, I'm speaking right now as a Jewish person, as a person with uh, physical disabilities. I'm speaking as an African-American person or Chinese-American person. And then here's the thing that happened during this meeting or at some point today. Maybe it's a specific council member who did that thing, who said that thing, who behaved in that way that unintentionally caused the the act of, of racism, of sexism, of whatever. But it's not that person's job who is the agent, who is a member of the dominating group. It's not their job to then say, oh, man, I'm so sorry. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Or worse, oh, no, you're, you're misunderstanding me. You know, he, he, here's what I meant to say. Um, it is the person's job who is a member of the dominating group to listen, to learn from it, to not respond. So if there, if there are things that people have to say, they say them, and then we move on to the rest of the process period. And what's the process period entail? Well, the process period is uh, something that goes against my gender socialization, and it's uh, something that impressed me at the first Men and Masculinity Conference I attended in 1992 in Chicago, where I finally for the first time really saw men say, Hey, you know, I, when you were making that point and I was disagreeing with you, I kind of sat back, I crossed my arms. I, I sort of sighed a couple times and fumed a little bit. And I just want to say, uh, you know, that's, I, I have a self-criticism of that. You know, I could have, even though I was disagreeing with you, I could have listened more attentively and not make, made faces at you and I'm listening to this. I'm like, who are these men? <laughs> They're like, uh, that are, that are actually being accountable to their own behavior, even their own crossing their arms and leaning back type of behavior. So it's a time for, you know, not just men, but anyone to say, Hey, this is, this is what I did in the meeting that I wish I hadn't done. Here are some appreciations I have. For those running the meeting, for anyone else in the room, just uh, some some thoughts and some notes about how the process of the meeting went. And I thought that was a cool way to end a meeting. And I thought that would catch on like wildfire. Now that it includes the empowerment part, I think it's even better. And I think uh, NOMAS council meetings are quite positive, but they're especially positive because we end like this each time. I agree with you. I think every meeting, every business meeting, you know, every nonprofit, both, you know, public sector, private sector, we should start that. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. in the private sector, there might be more resistance, but, um, you know, I think it, it really creates 
a sense of transparency and openness, but but I'm wondering what what you think it might take to get there because you're it doesn't require that everybody in the meeting speak. So even if someone has something that they want to share, you know, around a, something that was uncomfortable for them, if they don't feel comfortable, mm-hmm. how is that person encouraged in that meeting or over time? to be open and sharing and and safe. We end the meeting by saying, as we did that day, I believe Jacob said, you know, just because it's not said doesn't mean it didn't happen. There's Mm -hmm. sort of this group consciousness, at least in Nomos, that just because some person didn't say, hey, this racist thing happened to me, doesn't mean that there's probably a lot of racist things that, happened that uh that whites perpetrated that we are not aware of but we know they're out there racism doesn't just happen doesn't like fall from the sky uh it takes whites and it takes white supremacy systems of racism to make racism happen well as we've come to the close of our conversation today and the point where i've introduced the engendered questionnaire which I've adapted from James Lipton's questionnaire that he uses in, inside the actor's studio. So the first question, Ben, is what is at stake in this struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? By the way, I've been looking forward to these questions. I really love that you do this. I think there's nothing less at stake than the survival of our species, of our continuing to evolve as a species. I mean, I think we had a time where, you know, fighting with each other maybe was working for individual survival. But now we really, and especially in a nuclear age, we are in a, an age where all war can be the last war and that all acts of violence can lead to the destruction of our species and of the planet. We have to not just tolerate differences. We have to understand them and embrace them. And I think we will. I think we're going to make, make it. I, I have cautious optimism. If for no other reason, then I am in this incredible movement that I, I share with you and I share with the folks in Nomos. And I've gotten to meet so many <laughs> powerful people in that movement that I have to believe that we're, we're going to do it, that it's going to work. It sounds like you've answered my second question, which is what gives you hope. <laughs> do you want to add anything to that? Uh, I do. In addition to this movement, and I also mentioned the Me Too movement, uh, I am very hopeful because of the students from Parkland High School in Florida. These Parkland students have just spoken the truth to power in a way that's very inspiring to me as a 52-year-old uh, I am inspired by survivors like Andrea Constand, uh, and uh, I'm inspired by the example of Phyllis B. Frank, my mentor, and uh, I'm inspired by the Me Too movement and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement as well. So speaking to our listeners, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop? Well, I'll speak to your male listeners for a second. First of all, thanks for listening to the whole hour. <laughs> and thank you, Terry, for taking so much of your time and caring about what I had to say. Um, men, 
if you're listening to this podcast, maybe you're already involved. Maybe you know somebody or someone sent you a link. You should really listen to this. And I'm guessing you're already involved. You're already engaged in this work. But if you're not, I really need your help. Will you do this one thing for me? Will you call your local domestic violence program or your local rape crisis center? Ask them what they need. Ask them if you can volunteer. You know, they might not get back to you. You might have to leave a message. They're very busy. They're very understaffed. Don't get mad at them if they don't get back to you. But uh, just make an effort to try to do something. I know that some of you have been waiting your whole lives to stand for something. Maybe it's this. Like I said, it's an amazing movement. Come join us. We need you. Thank you so much, Ben, for your time. I have really enjoyed speaking with you today. And I wish you luck uh, as you enter this new phase of your life. And I will start and continue to tweet your hashtag, men listen to women. <laughs> Thank you, Terry, for your time and for your work. And it's, it's been an honor and a privilege to talk with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.